The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right, folks, welcome to week number two in our 33-week series. But who's counting? Through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Just a couple quick reminders of what we learned last week. I'm going to tell you in 45 seconds what we learned last week. And you say, Darren... If you could tell us in 45 seconds what we did last week, why do you take 40 minutes? Because I get paid by the hour. That's why. It's the gospel of Mark. Okay, what does the word gospel mean? We learned last week the most concise way, the pithiest way to say this is a gospel means a story about Jesus. That's what the word gospel means. And don't worry, I'll let you know when we get to our first blank. Um, So gospel means a story about Jesus. Well, who was Mark? Mark was um, really in a connected family in the early church, meaning Mark's mother was Mary, and she, her name was Mary, and she had a home that seemed to be the headquarters for the church in, in Jerusalem in the, in the very early days, because it was to Mary's home, to Mark's home, where he lived with his mother perhaps, that Peter first went to when uh, he escaped from prison. The place that he went to right away was the home that Mark was raised in. So clearly, Mark's family was very connected with the uh, early disciples. And uh, Mark was the guy that went on tour with Paul and Barnabas when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. But for some reason, a reason we don't know, Mark bailed on them. He he got to Perga, I think it was, and he said, I I, got to go home. I got to go back to Jerusalem. And so he did. Well, when they were about to go, Paul and Barnabas going to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas, who was a cousin of Mark's, by the way, so they were related, Barnabas said, let's take my cousin Mark again. He's matured. And Paul said, there's no way. We are not taking Mark with us. He bailed on us once. I'm not going to go through that again. And Barnabas and Paul had such a fight over it that they split up. The band broke up. And Paul said, okay, I'll go to Galatia. And Barnabas said, I'll go this way. And and Barnabas went with Paul. Uh, Barnabas went with Mark. And Silas went with Paul. <clears throat> we, well, we know that years later, they kind of reunited Paul and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and Mark. And we know that uh, because we read about it in scripture, and uh, you can look that up on, on our outlines from last week. But so essentially, Mark was a guy who was well-connected with the early church. And as it turns out, Mark and Paul got back together, and, um, and Paul valued Mark very much. And Mark and Peter worked together in Rome, it appears, uh, through Peter's writings. And it looks like in, in early church historians, in fact, John, the apostle John, the elder, wrote centuries ago that... Mark served as Peter's translator, his interpreter, his translator, because Peter probably did not speak Greek, and Mark, as a younger guy, looks like he did. And uh, so Mark was Peter's translator, and uh, that's how they work closely together. So what we have in the Gospel of Mark is a document from the apostolic circle, meaning it was either written by an apostle or one closely aligned with the apostles. And so what we have in the Gospel of Mark is, as John as quoted by Papias, as quoted by who? No, quoted by uh, Erasmus, maybe? I forget. Um, he, he, uh, what we have is he's correlated, he's written down what, uh, what 
Peter was teaching and preaching around and Peter's recollections of the life of Jesus. So that's what we have here. We know it was written in the, we assume it was written in the mid to late 60s. It was written before AD 70 because AD 70 was the year that the temple was destroyed. And if this was written after the temple was destroyed, Mark certainly would have mentioned that when he was quoting Jesus, prophesying that there'll come a day when not one of these stones in the temple will be standing on top of each other. You'd think surely Mark would have written, and that came to pass. Uh, so it was most likely, scholars believe, written uh, before AD 70. Okay, so we're ready to begin now. Mark chapter 1 at verse 1. Just before we read this, let me ask you this question. Have you ever read the Gospels and found yourself getting frustrated with the stupidity of the disciples? Right? Like you're reading it and you're going, seriously? Like you're thinking that? How stupid are you? And you think to yourself, if I was back then, I'm sure Jesus would have thought, wow, you're the smartest of all these disciples. Right? I'm sure you've never thought that. I've thought that. But you're not that arrogant. But I've read that and thought, seriously? Like... How can you be so stupid? He just multiplied loaves and fishes and you're wondering where the boat bread? Well, what are you thinking? Well, the truth is, it, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13 today. And if you skipped these first 13 verses, you would have a completely different perspective. Okay? If you started reading at verse 14 of Mark's gospel you would get the perspective of a front row person in the first century. You would get the perspective, if you skip the first 13 verses, you'd get the perspective of someone who was watching and listening to Jesus in real time. And I think you would find yourself th seeing things a bit differently. Because the first 13 verses give us an insider's view about who Jesus is. A view that nobody in the gospel had, except you as a reader. It's like when you read the book of Job in the Old Testament. As a reader, you, you, you're told early on that, you know, Satan goes before the Lord and God and says, you know, uh, oh, Job, you know, he only follows you because you do wonderful things for him. And God says, all right, do what you can, but you can't kill him, but take away all the other stuff and you'll see that he'll still worship me. Well, then when you're reading about Job's friends and all their reasons for why bad stuff's happening, you're thinking, no, no, no. That's not true. It's because Satan's trying to test him and tempt him. Well, you know that because you're a reader, you have inside information. It's the same with, with, the book of, with the gospel of Mark. The first 13 verses are us giving, getting, given that heavenly perspective that nobody else in the gospel that you're about to meet knew about except you, okay? That's what they're like. In fact, yeah, I've got time. Maybe, maybe not. Well, ever played the game Pictionary? When we were newlyweds, we used to play it a lot. And, and I remember this was years ago, before we had any kids or anything, we were up in Huntsville, Ontario at a cottage with family. And uh, my wife and I were, and my in-laws and uh, so on were playing Pictionary. And it was myself and my brother-in-law against my sister-in-law, my wife, and my mother-in-law. And, and, <laughs> and this is a legendary story in our family, anyway. And so uh, the, the, I'm not going to tell you what the topic was. The, and so the, my, uh, my wife actually, I, I forget who, no, my sister-in-law drew that, and then she drew that, and then that, and then And they spent like two minutes, no idea. What, what, what? 
In fact, I'll never forget my wife saying, one man, two men, three men, and a dead man. Well, the topic was movies. And it's clearly three men and a baby, right? Now when you see it, it's obvious, three men and a baby. And I'll never forget, I know the answer, and I'm sitting there with my brother-in-law, and I'm hearing my wife say, one man, two men, three men, and a dead man. No, three men and a very small dead man. No, they took two minutes, they never got it. And to this day, we laugh about this. In fact, if I want to taunt my wife, I'll just say, one man, two men, three men. I say all that because now when you look at that, yeah, of course, clearly, in the context of a movie, one man, two men, three men, and a baby. Yes, that's a famous movie. But they didn't know. They hadn't, you know. But now when they read it, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Well, that's what it's like with the Gospel of Mark. The first 13 verses is you're being given inside information. So when you see things happening, yeah, it's obvious. This is what's happening. Let's read Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what does beginning of the good news mean? Some scholars think this is the title of the book, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. And so it refers to the entire book, meaning this is, is uh, how the story of the life of Jesus inaugurated the whole kingdom of God, and that's still going on to this day. Other scholars see this as not the title of the whole gospel, but as referring only to these first few verses of this first chapter. They see Mark saying, this is how the ministry of Jesus began. You can choose whichever you prefer. It doesn't really matter. Okay? But it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus. I remember several years ago being invited to preach and teach in Jerusalem. And so I was at the, the King of Kings church there preaching on the Sunday and then did a midweek stuff as well. And I had been instructed, Darren, I know it's going to be hard for you, but whenever you refer to Jesus, don't call him Jesus. I said, okay. He said, because that wasn't his name. That's not what his name actually was. We, we refer to him here as Yeshua. How does this work? Well, as your outline says, the name Jesus is the Greek translation of the Old Testament name Joshua. That's your first blank, Joshua. Jesus' name was Joshua or Yeshua. It means, as your outline says, Yahweh saves. So when you read about Joshua in the Old Testament and the, and the, the, the battle of Jericho, Joshua was Jesus' name. He was Joshua or Yeshua. And so Yeshua, the Aramaic Hebrew, was translated into Greek as Jesus. So we call him Jesus, but his name wasn't Jesus per se. That's the Greek version of his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Joshua would be the anglicized version of that. And it means Yahweh saves. Now, Yahshua, Yeshua, was an incredibly common name in the first century Palestine. In fact, of the named characters who appear in the work of Josephus, a Jewish first century historian, the most common names were the following. Herod was named three times in his work. Uh, Jonathan, three times. Levi, four times. Simon, five times. And Yeshua, six times. So the most popular name at that time that, that Josephus quoted from those days was Yeshua or Joshua. In fact, four of the 12 high priests who held office in the first century were named Jesus or Yeshua. So it was a very common name. 
So it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus or Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, as your outline says, the Messiah is a translation of the Greek word for anointed. Anointed. Now, the, the, the Greek word that's being translated here is Christos. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. But that's the Greek word for anointed. But again, this is where first century, there were some challenges. Christos was most commonly associated with the, the concept of a wrestler being oiled down before his wrestling match. So we talked about, to a Greek, yes, I'm here to tell you about Jesus, the Christos. Jesus, the anointed wrestler? What are you talking about? Because Christos was the closest word they could have because anointed meant something different. As your outline says, to the Jew, anointing with oil was a symbolic act of setting someone apart. That's what anointing does. We understand that as well. It's a symbolic act of when you anoint someone with oil, it's a symbolic thing. You're setting them apart. But to the Greek first century mind, it was... Christos, oh, what is this? We don't quite understand this. So it became synonymous with Messiah or the anointed one, okay? But as your outline says, by the first century, it came to be used as the title, Christ or Messiah, used as the title for the promised end-time king from the line of David who would bring salvation to God's people. That's that next blank, salvation. So that's what it came to be known by uh, by, that in, by the end of the first century, or even in the first century, Christos, Greek, or uh, Messiah, uh, Mashiach, I think is the Hebrew, uh, for, uh, for the, the Jews. But this Messiah, or Christos, the anointed one, it became, it, and by the first century, this was the title for the promised end-time king who would come from the line of David, who would bring salvation to God's people. Now, here's the challenge for the whole Gospel of Mark. It's how God would bring salvation to the people that would be the source of confusion for this gospel. And this confusion directly impacted how Jesus revealed himself, as we'll see. So in the first century, uh, mid-first century, when Jesus walked the earth, the Messiah, the typical Jew, thought the Messiah was a political figure who was going to come, he was going to rally the people of Israel together, raise up an army most likely, overthrow these dirty Romans, kick them out of Jerusalem, kick them out of Israel, and restore David's kingdom. We're going to have this huge army, or it's going to be a supernatural army. We don't know how God's going to do it, but somehow the Messiah is going to come. He's going to rally everybody. He's going to kick these Gentiles, these non-Jews out of here, out of our land, restore purity and restore power, and it's going to be old times again. It's going to be like the good old days when Solomon and David ruled. That was the thinking of Christos, the Messiah. That was the expectation when Jesus walked the earth. And that had a lot of impact on how and when Jesus revealed himself, as we'll learn over the next few weeks. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, number three on your outline, the Son of God was a phrase that was widely used in various contexts and does not, on its own, communicate divinity. This is important to understand. The term Son of God does not, on its own, communicate divinity. This was a very common term, actually, back then. The Greco-Roman world for the first century was very familiar with the term son of God. Legendary heroes and kings and philosophers and miracle workers were sometimes referred to as sons of God. 
In Greek mythology, Zeus was called the father of both men and the father of gods. Roman emperors at times claimed to be sons of God. Caesar Augustus took the title Divi Filius, which means son of the divinized, and was translated in Greek inscriptions as son of God. So Caesar was called son of God. In Judaism, angelic beings were sometimes referred to as sons of God. Um, let me give you a couple examples that you can write down your margin. I don't, I'm not sure I put them on your outline. Genesis, did I put these on your outline? Genesis 6-2, Job 1-6, uh, Job 38-7, Daniel 3-25. Examples, again, where angels are referred to as sons of God. Israel as a nation is referred to as God's firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4, 22 and 23. 22, 23. In uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, 7 to 9. And uh, Psalm 89, 26. Where Israel is referred to as, as God's firstborn son. So, as your outline says, as Mark's gospel moves along, however, the reader's understanding of this title will evolve. Okay? So, on its own, face value, just saying Son of God does, is not in itself prove that he is divine. But, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, months, that the reader's understanding of what this term means is going to evolve and grow. It'll start with, yeah, son of God, and that's like Caesar. And then by the end, you've got the uh, Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross saying, surely this was the son of God. And he doesn't mean surely this was an angelic being or surely this was, you know, uh, like Caesar. He's saying surely the quality and character of this life was unlike any other. And uh, we're going to see that progression in Mark's gospel. Okay, so that's verse 1, verse 2 to 8. Let's read that together. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, that doesn't mean literally every single person. That's sort of hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. Confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. So what happens here at the beginning? Mark bundles two portions of scriptures, Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43, under the banner of Isaiah. So he just does it for brevity purposes. He quotes two portions of scripture and says, as Isaiah said, but he's actually quoting Malachi and Isaiah together. Um, and that wasn't uncommon uh, at that time. It's not a, a radical thing that he did. Number two, as your outline says, linking the word beginning in verse one with Old Testament passages, verse two and three, is Mark's way of saying God is doing something new, yet something that's long been foretold. So God's doing something new, but it's been long foretold. 
And now it's breaking into the scene. That's what he's saying. Number three, John's baptism of repentance was something unique. This was something unique, as your outline says. Now, baptism was not necessarily unique. Um, First of all, letter A, 3A, there were ceremonial baptisms. Ceremonial baptisms. We're uh, taking another tour to Israel, Lord willing, in March of 2020, 2020. I hope you can join us. Last time we were there, I I remember being impacted by, as we're on the, literally you can go and we will go, uh, on the steps of the temple, Herod's temple. The steps that Jesus would have walked on, you can walk on. And we were there, and at these, so there's the the steps going up up to the main entrance to the temple. And at the bottom of these steps are all these kind of holes, and where you step down into them, and then you walk out of them. And as they were pointed out to us, that these were ceremonial baths. So this is, again, where as a ceremonial cleansing, the people would come to the temple, and then they'd go into these baths and ritually kind of cleanse themselves, and then get up out of there and walk up into the temple. So there were ceremonial baptisms. But, for example, these would be where Jews would be ritually cleansed of moral impurities. But these were repeated regularly. And John's baptism was a one-time baptism, not just a merely a ceremonial one. And then B, there were proselyte. Proselyte, meaning uh, non-Jews, people who are being converted. To proselytize is to convert someone from one faith to another. So there were proselyte uh, baptisms. That's where Gentiles, non-Jews, would undergo conversion to Judaism. But proselytes emerged themselves in that baptism, where John's the one who did the baptizing. So it wasn't purely a proselyte baptism. It wasn't purely a ceremonial baptism. Baptism. Letter C, it appears that John did a blending of the two. There's some form of blending of the two here in his symbolic. But it's clearly symbolizing repentance. Okay? Number four, John's clothing and diet portray him as an ascetic, uh, meaning someone who you know, uh, fasts and, and uh, doesn't enjoy a lot of pleasures in life, an ascetic, and a prophet reminiscent of Elijah. Reminiscent of Elijah. In fact, 2 Kings, let me read that, 2 Kings uh, 1.8. It's almost a mirror of uh, John's description. 2 Kings 1.8 describing Elijah says he had a garment of hair and uh, had a leather belt around his waist, talking about Elijah. And so many scholars think this foreshadows Jesus linking John as the messenger, the forerunner of the Messiah mentioned in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 and 6. So a forerunner. In fact, remember the disciples later come to Jesus and say, why did they say that Elijah must come? And Jesus said, Elijah did come. And they rejected him. He's speaking of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is being portrayed even physically as an Elijah type figure. The forerunner who had been prophesied who would come ahead and prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, let's read those verses. I'm going to read Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So this is this Elijah-type prophet. By the way, he says, you know, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and various translations translate that phrase differently. This was fascinating. Taking off sandals was a slave's role. But interestingly enough, it was a role that was felt to be too low for a Hebrew slave. A Hebrew slave was not to take off the sandals of its mas his master, her master. And it was specifically excluded from the otherwise menial tasks of a rabbi's disciple. So rabbis would have disciples who would follow them around, and, and they would have tasks to serve the rabbi. But taking off their sandals was not one of the tasks. That was considered even too low for a rabbi's disciple. John places himself below either a Hebrew slave or a rabbi's disciple. He says that he is not fit to do what is even too demeaning for them to do. So this is an extreme expression of humility. Well, then now let's pick it up. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, we get to the baptism of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And we will get to that in a second, we won't jump ahead. So verses 9 to 11 is the baptism of Jesus. Now as your outline says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem but was raised in Nazareth. So he was born in Bethlehem. This is the Sea of Galilee. That's uh, the Mediterranean, the Sea of Galilee, the, the Dead Sea. Uh, Jerusalem's about here. Bethlehem's about here. Nazareth is about here. And so Jesus was born here in Bethlehem, but then remember, he then had to take off into Egypt because Herod was trying to kill uh, him. And then when they found out that Herod was dead, uh, through dreams, they returned back and they went up to Nazareth. And this is the region of Galilee. And uh, that's where he was raised. So he was born in Bethlehem, spent some time in Egypt, hiding out, and then he was raised in Nazareth. Now, being from Nazareth was like being from nowhere. It's like being from Spuzzum. With no offense to anyone here who's from Spuzzum. But it's like, Spuzzum, really? Can anything good come from Spuzzum? You know? Um, in fact, that's what it said in the Gospel of John. Uh, many of you are familiar with it, but some of you may not be. John 1:46. Uh, you wouldn't boast that you are from Nazareth. Uh, John 1:46 says, uh, let's start at verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, which is just kind of on the Sea of Galilee. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Like, seriously? Spuzzum? Can anything good come? Who, who, who's from Spuzzum? Who's from Nazareth? In fact, Nazareth is not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Jew, Jewish Talmud, the Jewish writings. It's not mentioned anywhere in the writings of Josephus. It's just... Nazareth was a dumpy little town that 
you didn't really don't want to go and visit. In, in fact, when we take tours of Israel, I often skip Nazareth because there's nothing there. Really, there's, there's nothing there. And, um, but anyway, number two, unlike Matthew, uh, Mark does not concern himself with why Jesus would submit to a baptism of repentance. Why did Jesus get baptized? If it's a baptism of repentance, as a symbol of your repentance, why would Jesus be baptized? Now, even Josephus, the Jewish historian, who's not a Christ follower, kind of alluded to John's baptism, and he points out that it was merely a sign that your heart had, was right. It was like a purely ceremonial thing. It didn't actually accomplish anything in your life, per se. So it's not a sacrament. Excuse me. False teeth are slipping there. There we go. Um, it, it, was a, it was a sign more than accomplishing something. It was a symbol, like a wedding ring. Like a, uh, like a wedding ring, we'll say. It's just a symbol. Um, but for most people, it was a sign or symbol that you had repented. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it was, a, it was a sign that your heart was right with God and that you were aligning yourself with God. Now, for every other human being, that would include repentance. Because all have sinned and fallen short. But it wasn't necessarily, thank you, it wasn't necessarily so um, if repentance wasn't needed. So Jesus was aligning himself with the Father. And some scholars point out, he was possibly aligning himself with sinful humanity. Saying, I'm coming, I'm coming in the place of sinful humanity, this must be done. Okay. Uh, as your outline says, number three, since Jesus came up out of the water, it appears that this was baptism by immersion. Baptism by immersion. I mean, you could... That's not a knockdown, drag out case for it, but it's a pretty good sign that it was coming up out of the water. It wasn't something that was sprinkled on him. It was something that was dipped there. And this likely happened right here because um, all the people from Judea and Jerusalem came. And uh, so, and there's, this is where it's a very wider part of the Jordan River. There's portions of the Jordan River that literally you could hop across like that. Uh, but uh, here it's wider and deep and very muddy and dirty. I lost a sandal in the Jordan River. Uh, I stepped in and just to baptize some folks and my foot went this deep into the mud and I tried to pull it out and my shoes somewhere to this day right there. And uh, so th this is uh, most likely they figure the spot where uh, uh, Jesus was baptized. Now supernatural signs accompany Jesus' baptism Witnessed, it looks like, by only Jesus and possibly John. John alludes to, in the Gospel of John, that he saw a spirit descend. But apparently the voices and, and the heavens coming open was an experience that only Jesus himself saw and experienced. The rest of the crowd didn't. And uh, again, so you're being given inside information here that the other people around didn't have. Okay? And... Uh, so it was a sort of a Jesus-only experience there, the supernatural signs. That's, uh, so read 10 to 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he, he saw, didn't say they saw, he saw heaven being torn open wide and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Okay? Now later in the Mount of Transfiguration, others heard this voice, but in this instance, no one else records, it's not recorded or anyone else recording that they heard and saw that, but Jesus did. 
Now, the tearing open of the heavens, as your outline says, that would be apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. If you're with us for our study of the book of Revelation, that's what the word revelation means, apocalypsis. It's an unveiling, a revealing. So that's apocalyptic language, uh, end time, um, very dramatic language, uh, signaling, signaling a revelation of and a visitation from God. Now, the descent of the Spirit. Again, here's where we just get so used to art for centuries. As your outline says, like a dove, not necessarily literally in the form of a dove. The Bible doesn't say that the Holy Spirit took on the form of a dove and landed on his shoulder, like every painting you've ever seen. It says, like a dove, not literally in the form of a dove. Could it have been a dove? Yes. But that's not what this says. Okay, it doesn't say. It says, uh, and a voice came from, uh, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. It's a simile. Descended like a dove. Like a dove would descend. It doesn't say as a dove in, in the original. Okay. Now, th the descent of the spirit also, the Messiah lives in dependence upon the spirit is what this is communicating. So the Messiah is living in dependence upon the Spirit, which is what's prophesied in Isaiah 11, 2-4 would happen. And then see the declaration from the Father. You are my Son. Uh, Psalm 2-7 references the Messiah from the Davidic line. Okay, from the Davidic line. So this ties into what had been prophesied. You're my Son, whom I love. Literally, it's beloved, Possibly a reference to Genesis 22, 2, linking Jesus and Isaac as sacrificial lambs. Okay, sacrificial lambs. So the language is very similar. Again, we don't know, but this is what scholars are tying together here. Genesis 22, 2. I'll start at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, your beloved son, literally, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So this is my son, my beloved son, is what the father is saying. So again, the linkage in a Jewish mind would be immediate. Oh, this is like Isaac, a sacrificial lamb, the beloved son of Abram. And then with you, I am well pleased. Possibly a reference to Isaiah 42, 1 linking Jesus to Isaiah's servant of the Lord, who later gives himself as an atoning sacrifice, is the next blank, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And again, when you read about the suffering servant, Isaiah 52, 12 to 53, 12, you'll see the linkage there is, it's uh, obvious, okay? What's interesting here as well in this baptism, that's not on your outline, but in this baptismal uh, description, you have all three members of the Trinity participating. So you have the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit descending like a dove. So if you remember when we did our study in the Trinity uh, a year or two ago, we learned that there was a, uh, a heresy called modalism or also is called uh, monarchianism, sometimes it's referred to that, or Sabellianism, named after one of the guys who uh, promoted it, Sabellianism. And this was the idea, and actually it is still existent today, 
in some forms. One for Jesus-only Pentecostals would be uh, modern-day modalists. And this is the view that there's not a trinity, but there's one person who first reveals himself as the Father, then he revealed himself as the Son, and now he reveals himself as the Spirit. So there's not Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. There's one person who reveals himself in three different modes, three different forms of existence. That's called modalism, and that was rejected centuries ago as a heresy. Um, and uh, so clearly this would argue against that. We have the Father speaking as the Son standing there and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So you have the three persons being revealed or expressed in some way. So it seemed to go against this. So you're saying, as I wondered, well, how would modalists, how would a Jesus-only person um, respond to that? And uh, so I looked it up, and essentially what they're saying is that, um, that this is just an example where, uh, what did they say? They assert that God can manifest himself simultaneously. So what God did was he just simultaneously spoke as the Father, and this like he ran down and took on the form of the Son, and then he did all three, the one person did simultaneously revealed all three at the same time. Which, if you're only one person and you reveal yourself in three forms in this one instance, that almost, that seems kind of deceptive to me. Like you're trying to intentionally confuse people. Um, so I, I, I don't think that explanation really is very strong. But this has been held up. The baptism is a very strong example of the, the Trinity because all three persons are being expressed at that same time. Then we have the temptation of Jesus, the tempting of Jesus, which is found in Mark 1, 12 to 13. Let's read that. Um, At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now again, look how brief this is. The other Gospels are telling us, we all know about the temptations, but throw yourself off the temple and turn these stones into bread, and so on and so forth. Mark, none of that. He knew about it, but none of it, okay? Uh, as your outline says, number one, the Spirit's descent, oops, yeah, the Spirit's descent upon Jesus did not result in a time of peace and tranquility or relaxation, but immediately led to a time of testing. Okay, so again, the presence of the Spirit in your life does not necessitate, oh, that means everything's going to be wonderful now. Oh, the Spirit has descended upon me, and now it's just going to be warm baths and sunshine, and this is going to be flowers everywhere. No, immediately, boom, into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by Satan. Okay? Number two, in the Jewish mind, the wilderness was not a place for camping and relaxing. For them, the wilderness was a place of proving, wandering, and seeking. Proving, wandering, and seeking. When we think, ah, I'm going to head out to the wilderness, oh, you're going to get away from things and kind of relax and be one with nature. No, I'm going to go out there and be tested, tried, proved, wander. You know, that's where my ancestors went way off the rails. So it's proving, wandering, and seeking. That's what you did in the wilderness, okay, in the Jewish mindset. Number three, Jesus is there for the classic biblical round number of 40 days, perhaps pointing to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. So perhaps, number three, pointing towards Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, where they were tested as well. Number four, unlike Matthew and Luke, who described the testing of the three distinct stages 
in three distinct stages. Mark presents Jesus' confrontation with Satan as one massive clash. And Jesus' victory is simply assumed. So it's just for Mark, it's one massive clash. It's not several paragraphs describing all this. No, it just says he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And it doesn't even say he won. It just says, and he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Classic Mark. Mark just gets to the point and moves on. Now, hear this. After you've read the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel, you now know more than every person you're going to meet for the rest of this gospel. Okay? So you know stuff no one else knows. So don't be so hard on them when you come across them and you're thinking, seriously, it's the Messiah, folks. They don't know that. Okay? And again, Messiah for them means a political ruler riding on a big horse, chopping the heads off of Romans. And so they're trying to work things out here. You have information they don't have. You're an insider, and they're on a journey of trying to figure things out. So let's watch as Jesus slowly and systematically reveals himself to the world. So verses 1 to 13 give us the heavenly perspective. And the next time we're together at verse 14, we're going to hit the ground earth with a thud. After John was put in prison, whoa, Welcome to reality now. So much for John and the messenger and Elijah and prophet. And yes, John was wonderful. He baptized Jesus. And now, meanwhile, John's put in prison, gets his head cut off. Back to reality, back to the real world here, okay, so to speak. So here's a couple questions that we're going to answer next time we're together. Why would demons advertise who Jesus is? Because they do that. And the next time we get together... Jesus is going to confront some demons, and they're going to say, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One. Why would they do that? Why would they advertise for Jesus? And since they did that, why would then Jesus tell them to be quiet? So why would they do what seems counterintuitive? Why advertise for God? And if you're getting this free advertising, why would Jesus say, be quiet? Don't tell people who I am. Why would he do that? In fact, he does that a lot in Mark's gospel. Don't tell anybody. I know I just miraculously healed you, but don't tell anybody. What? We're going to ask those questions over the next few weeks and hopefully give some good answers. Um, we've got a couple minutes for questions about what we learned today. Any questions about what we've learned today? Yes, sir. Good question. How do we know, uh, if this is only experienced by Jesus, how do we know what happened? Um, yes, so Mark would be getting his information from Peter, who spent three years 24-7 with Jesus. So I'm sure Jesus shared this information about what happened in his life and ministry. Okay. Or, Scripture also says that Jesus said, you know, I can't, when he was still on the earth, he says, I can't, there's much more that I have to tell you that I can't tell you now, but later the Spirit will come and he will reveal all of these things to you. So it could be a combination of those two. Yes, John. And then here. Yeah, with these uh, sandals we're talking about, uh, one of the things that comes to my mind when Jesus walked the disciples' feet, what was he wearing? What was he wearing? I don't know, John. <laughs> they would have been wearing sandals. They all wore sandals. Uh, that was a servant's role. Um, but for a Hebrew slave, a Hebrew servant, it was below them. And for a disciple, it was even below them. So think of what Jesus did. You bring up a good point, which would be even more shocking. 
Okay, a, serve, a Hebrew slave wouldn't wash these feet. A Gentile one would. Hebrew wouldn't. And a dis, rabbi's disciple isn't even asked to do this. And you, as the master, are doing this? Whoa, that's why Peter said, there's no way I'm letting you do this. And then Jesus said, well, if I can't do this, you can have nothing to do with me. Then Peter says, then wash my whole body. Classic Peter. Yes. the festivals and all that. I'm not sure that it would have because this wasn't part of a festival. It wasn't, that's why it was, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. That was very popular in this area. Doesn't talk about people from Galilee and all that coming down, but uh, amongst the religious elite and so on in Jerusalem and in Judea, they were flocking, it said. Um, so it was, um, it was a, uh, they were repenting. They were wanting to align their lives with God. It wasn't tied to any of the feasts or the festivals. It was a unique one-off, this John, this prophet out in the wilderness that they'd all heard about, um, that everyone was following. And remember later, Jesus tested the, the, uh, the uh, religious elite when they were talking about Jesus. And he said, well, I'll answer your question, before, but first you answer this one. John, did he come from God or from the others? Or, or, or did he make that up? And they thought, oh, man, if, if, they say, if we say it's from God, then he'll say, why didn't you uh, follow him? And we say if it's from, uh, he made it up himself, then they'll all attack us because they all love John. So we don't know. And he says, well, then neither am I going to answer you. So John was very popular uh, at that time, and Jesus knew that, and people were flocking. But it was uniquely part of his own uh, blending of a proselyte ceremonial baptism. One more question? All right, folks, next time we're together, it's, it's communion next Sunday, but the following Sunday, we pick this up again in Mark chapter 1, picking up at verse 14. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.